Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Wednesday, November 29th. Before I forget, I want to remind you that tomorrow on my show from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., we are doing a live virtual Zoom panel on diversity and inclusion. That is from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. So uh, it's you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. You do need a Zoom link, though. So go to our website, WCPT820.com, and uh, register to get a Zoom link. Yes, uh, that portion of my program will still be on the radio We will be on the radio. You can also, of course, listen on the TuneIn radio app. You can listen on your computer. You can listen all the ways you normally do. But if you want to see us in all of our, excuse me, in all of our glory, then you need to get on the Zooms. You need to be part of the Zoomy thing. We're going to have, um, we've done these before, and they're always really fascinating discussions with uh, some of the of the people who are really doing incredible work in, in these areas. And uh, we have actually done a diversity and inclusion panel before, and it was it was fascinating. Even somebody like me who talks to a lot of these people all the time on the air, it's always uh, an interesting perspective, and you always learn something. We're going to be uh, we're going to have somebody from Great Lakes Clinical Trials. We're going to have Dr. David Sanders, who's from Malcolm X College and uh, the Executive Service Corps. Our good friend Dan Allen from Cisco. David Goldenberg from the Anti-Defamation League, Diana Alfaro, who is with the Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity in the Office of Minority Economic Empowerment. So this is going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. Some of these people you've heard from before on my show, some of the people you're going to be hearing from for the first time. But I promise you it's going to be fascinating. It is going to be tomorrow, Thursday, from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. So um, if I can go to all the trouble to fix my hair and put on makeup, then you can go to the trouble of downloading a Zoom link <laughs> so you can appreciate my effort. Okay? It's a deal. Uh, now I want to talk to you about uh, some of the couple of really interesting stories. First on our list, I think I forgot to mention this yesterday. We had so much to talk about. This may be the week that George Santos is expelled from Congress. This could be, I know this is, they've moved for this to be voted on twice before, Twice before, he he has uh, slipped through, but this could be the difference. Last time, there was a vote to throw him out of Congress. 
there were Democrats who voted to keep him. And um, some of them explained, look, that they were no fans of George Santos. But at that moment, when they were taking that vote to expel, while he had been accused and he was being investigated, as of that moment, none of the investigations had concluded. None of the reports had been written. And he hadn't been convicted of anything. But now the Congressional Ethics Committee has concluded their report, a 56-page report on George Santos that just was scathing. And um, forget about the lies that got him elected, the things that he's been doing. They found what they believed was evidence of criminal activity, and they said they were turning all of their findings over to the DOJ and that the the implication being that they fully expected criminal charges. I mean, this is a guy who was, you, you know, there are very strict rules for how you can spend campaign money, money people donate to you, and you can't spend it on Botox, you know, um, which is just one of the things he's accused of. He's also accused of getting credit card information from his donors and then using those credit cards to buy himself stuff. Anyway, the Democrat from California, Robert Garcia, yesterday made a move to force a vote on George Santos. As I understand the process, that vote is supposed to take place within two days of the move to bring the expulsion about, which would mean that potentially today or tomorrow, uh, George Santos could be kicked to the curb. Politico was reporting that there are at least 95 Republicans who have told Politico that they would vote to expel him. If you combine the ones who say they definitely will, there's also a number who have said "Mm, they might. And all of the Democratic votes. And it is distinctly possible that the two-thirds majority of the members of Congress necessary to kick somebody out. It's very, very not only possible, but at this point, I would say likely that they will meet that threshold And that uh, George Santos, who I think tried to stave off this action by saying earlier, oh, I'm not going to run for re-election. Sort of like, just leave me alone. Let me finish my term. Um, But that didn't seem to sway anybody. So. George Santos is said, supposedly, uh, Mike uh, Johnson, you know, the far-right Republican Speaker of the House, he told reporters <clears throat> that he had, a con- he had a conversation with George Santos and they talked about his options. But uh, that's pretty much all Johnson said. And Santos has said publicly that he absolutely positively, under no circumstances, will voluntarily resign his seat. Interestingly, though, 
He has also said recently that he thinks this new effort, this third vote to expel him from Congress, he believes it's it's going to succeed. He has said that he's not going to go of his own volition, but he um, he has acknowledged that this vote is most likely the one that will remove him from the halls of Congress. Um, it, despite his acknowledgement that he is probably going to be expelled, um, he said, I was sent here by the people of the 3rd District of New York, who must be so proud of those votes. I represent them, not the political class in Washington. If they want to send me home, if they think this was a fair process, if they think this is how it should be done, and if they're confident that this is a constitutional way of doing it, God bless their hearts. I guess that's George Santos, who has lied about everything, has refused to resign. I guess that's his idea of taking the high road here. And just as... um little reminder, shortly after he was elected to Congress, with the exception of one tiny little Long Island news organization that knew he was a liar before he was elected, but nobody was listening to them, nobody picked up on their reporting, uh, he lied on his resume. Uh, he said he graduated from, I think it's called Baruch College with a bachelor's degree in economics and finance. He never attended that college, let alone graduated from it. He also said he was a star on the college volleyball team at this school that he never actually attended. He said uh, as part of his resume that he worked at um, Citigroup. He worked at Goldman Sachs. Both of those companies told the New York Times they have no record of George Santos ever working there. George who? I'm sorry, George who? Um, he has also said that his mother was inside one of the World Trade Center towers when they were attacked on 9-11. But immigration records prove George Santos' mother wasn't even in the United States on that day. Oh, there are more. There are more lies. Remember where he said he was Jewish and then it was proven he wasn't Jewish. And he said he didn't mean Jew Jewish. He meant Jewish. He was like the Jewish people, not really a Jewish person. Oh. <sighs> and then it was um, discovered that he had um, been a drag queen and had marched in um, Mardi Gras parades, something he at first denied. And then when the um, evidence was irrefutable, he embraced it. <sighs> anyway, just a little reminder of what um, what a strange... An odd man he is. Remember, Kevin McCarthy was asked when the original like resume lies came to light. Kevin McCarthy was asked if he was going to kick him out of Congress. And Kevin McCarthy told reporters, 
He votes how I tell him to vote. Why would I get rid of him? Well, because he's a lying liar who lies. (laughs) But I guess if that were the case, Kevin McCarthy wouldn't be supporting Donald Trump, would he? Um, Speaking of the Republican race, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about um, Nikki Haley and what's going on with her right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We touched on this briefly yesterday, the fact that Nikki Haley has gotten the endorsement of the super PAC that was originally put together by the Koch brothers. Um, They endorsed her yesterday. It's called Americans for Prosperity Action. Um, And uh, it is huge. It is an absolutely huge endorsement for Nikki Haley. Um, Charlie Sykes in today's Bulwark writes about this endorsement that Nikki Haley has gotten. And he among other things, among the fact that it's kind of made Donald Trump mad and it's made Ron DeSantis mad. But it, he said it does two really, really important things, two important messages that this endorsement is sending out. First of all, uh, this endorsement and the promise of the deep pockets that come with it tells the Republican Party that they want Trump gone. They want to stop Donald Trump. If anybody had any doubts about where their support lied, they are making it clear They want the Republican Party to move on from its worship of Donald Trump. Now, it's interesting. I didn't realize this, but um, Nikki Haley is very hawkish on foreign policy. If it were up to Nikki Haley, you know, the Republicans would fall in line for aid to Ukraine. She's also talked about possible military action against Iran, which is kind of scary. She thought that the United States shouldn't have pulled out of Afghanistan. I mean, she's hawkish. And the Coke Network, the Coke Club, as I like to call them, they are not. They are not anywhere near as hawkish as as she is. But they're sending a message to, you know, we talk about this all the time. If you're if you hold out for whether it's the race for school board, for governor, for Congress, for president, if you're holding out for the perfect candidate, a candidate whose values perfectly align with yours, you're never, ever, ever, ever going to vote. So to other Republicans, this Coke Club is sending the message that don't let perfect be the enemy of good, that there doesn't need to be a purity test to get behind another another candidate he the coke club is sending a message that it is time to stop donald trump 
It is time to set aside ideological differences. It is time to take the risk of antagonizing the MAGAverse. Because that's exactly what's... We've talked about this. We've talked about this a lot. About how the um, current crop of Republicans in elected office, many of them think that Donald Trump is no good. Apparently in Liz Cheney's new book, Mike Lee called Donald Trump Orange Jesus and that he couldn't believe how they had to kowtow to Orange Jesus. Those in elected office have proven themselves too cowardly to stand up against Trump. And I've said all along, the only way to stand up to, against Trump, if you're a Republican, is to put your money where your mouth is. And that, as much as I am not a fan of anything Coke, especially not the Coke Club, they're doing what a lot of people in elected office who who would like to, they're doing it. They're actually doing it. They're standing up to Trump. They're saying no to MAGA. They're saying we are behind Nikki Haley. It's really, really interesting. Um, in uh, Charlie's column today, he uh, quotes his colleague, Will Selleton. And uh, Will is a progressive, but posted on threads, this is a very good thing, even if you don't like the Koch network. One of the main drivers of the current Republican madness is a warped primary electorate that incentivizes pathologies such as election denial. We need more people from the middle, including the moderate right, to dilute the power of the fanatics. Don't wait for the general election when it's a nail biter between a Democrat and an authoritarian. That's another thing the Koch club is doing with this, um, putting their money where their mouth is behind Nikki Haley. They are trying to do what they can to preserve our democracy. I think Nikki Haley, pretty much most people think Nikki Haley doesn't really have a shot against Donald Trump. Tim Miller, who appears um, as a talking head on cable news a lot, he also writes for The Bulwark. He said somebody asked him what advice he would have given the Koch network, and he said, well, the advice I would have given them is that they should have done this six months ago or even ten months ago. They, like, literally waited as long as they possibly could to make a move like this. I'm hoping... that this inspires some of the Republicans who are flirting with the idea of funding no labels, maybe this will encourage them to try to restore, repair their party. Because it isn't going to be the elected officials who do this. They're too scared. It isn't even going to be the party officials. They're too scared, too. They're either Trump crazies or they're afraid of the Trump crazies. So it's got to be the people who have so much money that the MAGAs can't really hurt them. They really they really can't. If this move by the Koch Club 
weakens the no labels effort, that alone makes it worthwhile. Again, praising something being done by the Coke Network makes me kind of a little bit want to throw up. But I think we all have to take a step back here. Yes, they're terrible people. And frankly, even Nikki Haley, where the hell does she stand on any issue? Jay Rosen uh, is a very astute commentator on politics. <laughs> and he talked about he was actually kind of sticking it to The New York Times. He said a recent New York Times profile dis- described Nikki Haley as having, quote, an ability, an ability to calibrate her message to the moment. And he says a less euphemistic way to put this is that she seems willing to say whatever might work to her political advantage. Um, she has flip flopped on so many issues that even if it were her versus Joe Biden, I think that I think if, if she really becomes the leader at any point in time, she'll be destroyed by her own very words because she can't stay on message. She doesn't seem to have one simple message. But but Nikki Haley isn't Donald Trump. Nikki Haley isn't saying that she wants to destroy the government that we have. She doesn't want to destroy democracy. She doesn't agree with what you and I believe. But she is an actual sane human being. So there's that. Is that the good news for the day? Maybe. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. going to shift our focus uh, locally for a few minutes uh, to talk about an issue that gets media attention from time to time, but not nearly enough. And maybe that is going to be changing in the very near future. Joining us now is Trina Reynolds-Tyler, who's Director of Data for the Invisible Institute, and Sarah Conway, who's a senior reporter from City Bureau. They recently got together to do an investigative series called Missing in Chicago. Trina, Sarah, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, Sarah, let's start with you. For our listeners, describe what you covered in the Missing in Chicago series. Trina and I set out to understand Uh, some of the qualms that community members have had um, for many years in how Chicago police handle missing persons cases for black women and girls in the city. Um, Our reporting began with um, an analysis of complaints that had been grouped um, using an algorithm that Trina had developed with a human rights data analysis group that's based out of the Bay called HR DAG. And we looked into 54 complaints to start um, that were connected to missing persons cases. Within those complaints, we started to see patterns 
of issues that people were experiencing. One of the first things that we noticed looking at complaints that most of the complaints we analyzed were filed by black women and they were for their children. And one of the initial things that we saw was that when black women in Chicago attempted to report their their children missing or a loved one missing, they would experience uh, verbal abuse. They would um, sometimes be denied or delayed a missing persons report. And um, sometimes people would be, you know, have just general questions about the, the level of rigor that police would have with their loved ones missing persons cases. So that really started us off on an inquiry into you know, every year young people are leading a march um, with COCO from the Chicago Police Department in Bronzeville to Washington Park, you know, marching to raise awareness on missing and murdered black women and girls in the city. And so we wanted to understand how exactly are police handling missing persons cases, who makes up most of the missing persons cases, and, you know, it, to understand this neglect that community members have been saying for years that they're experiencing. Trina, um, I've got to tell you, when it comes to algorithms, all, all I pretty much know is the word algorithm. So explain to me how you were able to create something to sift through the data and what exactly you were looking for. So there were two parts to this, um, the data work that went into um, digging into um, this project. The first part is, you know, parsing through narrative text of police misconduct records. We received a document dump for the year 2011 to 2015, every complaint against the Chicago police. Now, the, the, the use of an algorithm, you know, trained by community members who were reading misconduct records really allowed us to go from looking at a haystack full of needles to, I mean, uh, um, to a, looking for it from a needle in a haystack to a haystack full of needles, it allowed us the opportunity to group the um, to group complaints not by you know the way that uh, uh, the investigatory board uh, categorized them, but based around the context that the complaints came out of. One of the categories we were interested in was neglect. Instances where people are calling the police, people are asking, hey, we need some help. And they reported that officers mistreated them. You know, um, within that, that's the 54 complaints we were able to identify. But then when Sarah and I got together in 2021, we took a dive into Chicago Police Department missing persons data, Cook County Medical Examiner's data. OEMC calls, right, in order to understand how many people are reported missing that were murdered. You know, when you look at the Chicago missing persons data from the Chicago Police Department, it says that majority of them, nearly 100 percent of them are closed, non-criminal, meaning incident is closed and not criminal in nature. They actually reclassified 10 of the cases uh, between 2000 to 2021 as homicides. Specifically, you know, I don't know if y'all heard of Marlon Ochoa Lopez, a young pregnant girl who, who you know, whose baby was cut out of her. Oh. And right. And so but but we were able to identify 11 additional homicides that Chicago police had not noted in the missing in the in the data were criminal in nature, including four cases where officers closed the case, even though the person had not come come back home. How could they do that, Trina? 
Well, it's interesting. It's, you know, a part of this is an issue of oversight, right? And then a part of this is an issue of culture and attitudes around missing persons cases. Nationally, folks say, well, most of these cases are runaways. They'll come back home. And, you know, in the case of Shavana Prather, for example, um, officer, she had run away two weeks before. So officers kind of assume, you know, maybe we could, you know, this is my speculation here. When they wrote in the report, you know, we spoke to the complainant. The complainant relayed that the missing was at a friend's house, victim offender. No, officers had had didn't even realize that. Two hours after they filed that report saying that Shavana had been found safe, that her body would be found in a marsh. Um, and, 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 and evidence indicated that she had been there for days. There's no way that officers could have could have uh, spoken to the complainant, you know, the mother of Shavana, and noted that she had been found. But um, well, are but, you are you implying or does the data imply that? that there was a misunderstanding or they she was misidentified or just that they wanted to uh, add another closed case to their resume and figured nobody would notice so just claim she was found do we know you know i know the data only tells you so much but what's going on here what is the bigger picture I think the bigger picture is, you know, to reference what Trina had said, that there is an issue of oversight and case closure procedures, as well as data mismanagement. We know that uh, through Freedom of Information Act requests, we acquired all of CPD's reported missing persons cases from the year 2000 to 2021. We've acquired, you know, acquired medical examiner death data, as well as OEMC calls. And, you know, we spent time and time again at um, the medical examiner office going through autopsy reports to kind of come out and see like a couple things. The first is that this is a crisis that disproportionately impacts black people in the city. Black Chicagoans make up 70% of all missing persons cases over the past 20 years. But when we look within that, we know that this is really a crisis that's impacting black children. Black children make up about 60% of all missing persons cases and black girls in particular from the age of 10 to 20, make up 2% of Chicago's population in 2020, according to census data, but 30% of all missing persons cases. And and so from a perspective of law enforcement who, you know, from the, you know, when you think of a missing persons case, you're thinking I'm supposed to go and save or help or find someone. But often because of the position that law enforcement holds, it's, you know, they're they're looking for offenders. Um, and I think by way of the the criminalization of young people and the hypersexualization of black girls, you know, Chicago's a child prostitution has is a hotspot for child prostitution. Law enforcement don't really see, you know, these young folks as as victims. They see them as uh, folks who may be responsible for their own exploitation. So, Trina, are you, you're, when you say they're looking for offenders, you don't mean that they're looking for kidnappers. They are looking for the missing person themselves to be an offender. Well, Joan, it's an interesting question. I'm going to jump in um, because, you know, we spoke to academics that actually look into this issue nationwide, um, as well as different 
law enforcement officials around the country. We spoke to, you know, people pretty high up in Miami and D.C., as well as Houston and one, you know, as well as detectives in other cities in in the country, as well as, you know, uh, people in CPD itself. There's a real challenge that law enforcement struggles to see missing persons cases as being connected to crimes. There's, you know, we can look at data management and that's one of the findings in our investigation is that, um, you know, as Trina had mentioned, there is a somewhat an amount of confusion internally at CPD around case closure procedures for missing persons cases when the cases need to be reclassified as being associated to another crime. So I think that, you know, one of the things in our investigation is that it it pokes at, we hope, you know, how CPD is managing their data, as well as other oversight and case closure and case reclassification issues. So what needs to change? Do they need to, Trina, hire somebody like you uh, to, to straighten out, uh, straighten out their data? What, aside from the, um, racial aspects of this, which I want to get into after the break, as just as far as data collection and data classification, Trina, do they need a new algorithm? Well, you know, it's interesting um, because, you know, one, missing persons, this impacts everyone. Although within the data, we see this is like um, many of these cases are black people. It's also, you know, we see people of across races represented here in the data. And we know everyone knows what it's like to, to, to have fears about, you know, your loved one, what, you know, the fear around, you know, how how gut-wrenching it is to not know if they're okay. But I'm going to go into the legislation really quickly here because in 1984, you know, legislators and law enforcement have been talking about the importance of data. They've been talking about the importance of noting the final disposition of missing persons cases. And also, if you look at the field reporting manual, Uh, for Chicago Police Department, which was created in 1985, they noted the importance of of documenting officer response time. These pieces of information not only help the public, but law enforcement themselves better understand what's going on within their own department. And what we see here is that officers aren't um, actually following their own directives. And I don't think me being high, me or, you know, young journalists or data scientists even being hired would help to enforce law enforcement to actually follow their own directives here. It has to come from, you know, it's, it, it really has to... Uh, Law enforcement themselves have to be invested. If they are the entity who is working on missing persons cases, they have to, they themselves have to be invested in supporting, you know, not only being driven by grabbing offenders, but, but, uh, you know, supporting survivors, understanding victim profiles, and also documenting their behavior so that, um, so that some accountability can, can take place within the department. I'm speaking with Trina Reynolds-Tyler, who's director of data for the Invisible Institute, and Sarah Conway, senior reporter for the City Bureau, about an investigation the two of them did into missing persons. We're going to take a break and continue our discussion 
right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Trina Reynolds, Tyler, and Sarah Conway teamed up to investigate missing in Chicago. Who goes missing in Chicago and how are those cases handled? Guys, one of the things I want to ask you about, I mean, in looking at journalism practices, people started pointing out a while ago that if um, a crime was committed by a 16-year-old um, white male, uh, the articles written would say, oh, this boy did this. But if the crime was committed by a 16-year-old black male, it would be this man or this young man. There's There was this idea that somehow um, African Americans are more mature and more adult-like at a younger age. Does that play into this? Because you said so many of these cases are um, are dismissed. And I mean, if somebody's missing and they're 13 years old and they come from a Tony North Shore suburb, my guess is police aren't going to assume that they're missing because they're working as a prostitute somewhere. So how does race play into all of this? Well, from interviews with impacted families, as well as advocates and community members, um, it was brought up to us in our reporting that police often felt that, or families and loved ones often often felt that police would victim blame individuals. And oftentimes, loved ones felt that was connected to both their race and their gender. Um, We know, you know, pointing out to Dorothy Tucker's reporting that black women in Chicago are disproportionately impacted by violent crimes. And so when we're doing reporting around how police interact with black families, particularly, you know, how they're handling the missing persons cases of black women and girls, we know that these are really some of the most vulnerable people in the city and that the systems and the way, you know, accountability and also, um, you know, everything from data management to oversight over missing persons cases, we can see that, you know, there is a a disconnect between what families are saying are happening to them and, you know, an awareness of these issues within CPD. And so I think that that can ripple out to understand that, you know, it's a really scary thing when anyone's loved one, you know, regardless of their their race or gender in Chicago go missing. But from what we're seeing in this reporting is, is that, you know, the, the um, standards of oversight and accountability and data management um, are not are not really there. And so it's a it's something that really, you know, we know that it's impacting black women and girls disproportionately, but it's something that's really impact it has the potential to impact all Chicagoans. And I just really quick, Joan, I wanna hop in here, Trina Reynolds, Tyler, you know, just just naming what you said about this kind of the, um, the vilification of black children and the ways that, you know, I think with missing persons in specific, they talk about, you know, missing white women syndrome. Like you see Gabby Petito and others in the media when the, when a white woman, it goes missing, it, it can make national news. Right. But, um, but that doesn't even, you know, when you look at the data, you see white males, there are more white male cases than white female cases for missing people and so we we see the ways that the media doesn't necessarily reflect um the the actual 
um, you know, the actual landscape. And, you know, again, it's like you, you, you see, like you said, you're talking about in the media, you'll see like black, you know, a white boy. There's a way of kind of giving um, people more grace based on their race. And then even, you know, coming back to what you said about like a, um, you know, officer saying, well, she may be just a prostitute, you know, victim blaming. You know, we think about Tekayla Tribbett, 14 year old girl who was reported missing in 2019. You know, she she was she had bipolar disorder. She was definitely high risk. You know what I mean? Like likely to be exploited. And she was she was uh, ultimately groomed by a over 30 year old man who began to beat her. You know, according to underlying documents, she told her friend, he won't stop beating me the day that she you know, the day after she was reported missing, you know, a couple weeks later, she was found executed in a Gary, Indiana alley. Now, even though a homicide case was open in Gary, Chicago police closed that case and they 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 labeled it closed non-criminal. Um, um, and so it's 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 really it's a, it's it's really frustrating here because, again, you know, like you said, there is this kind of vilification of folks. And then there's the hyper hyper media attention specifically on missing white women so much so that there's a term for it, missing white women syndrome. But then but then white males are actually more likely to be reported missing than white females. It's interesting to me that some of the insights you got on this came from talking not just to organizations or looking at the data, but talking to the actual families. What else did you learn talking to the families involved in these situations? We learned that you know, to have a loved one go missing is a very isolating and traumatic experience, especially when there's no closure. You know, some people are never found and others are the victims of violent crimes. And so that was a common theme that we discovered as journalists when we would talk to families is that many of them had to sit with and and, and kind of navigate a level of neglect from the detectives assigned to their cases alone. Um, you know, had to figure out how to navigate both connecting with and trying to get answers from the Chicago Police Department, as well as how to interact with and engage with media or the mayor's office. And so it's an experience that isolates a lot of families and is very traumatic for them. Just to piggyback here, we learned, Trina Reynolds-Tyler here, we learned about lots of public health underlying issues, substance use abuse, you know, mental health issues, issues related to access to housing and safe safe spaces, you know. Um, um, there, are, there are lots of, you know, indications of, opportunities for intervention, you know, some, some basic public health things that, that um, r- really played a huge role in the ultimate exploitation and sometimes murder of people. We learned that quite a lot of that from fam- family members. Hmm. When you guys, I assume you presented this data or made it available to law enforcement, what kind of a reaction have you gotten from law enforcement? Well, it's interesting, Trina Reynolds-Tyler here, we we told law enforcement our findings, specifically, you know, noting that there were four cases that law enforcement closed without finding someone. 
and and they didn't really uh, give us a response that uh, directly acknowledged what we said. You know, they said that they investigate, you know, the cases the same across zip code, race and sex. But then when you look at their data, law enforcement themselves cannot do their own independent analysis to make such assertions. And 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 then, you know, on the other that's right. And then on the other piece, um, you know, law enforcement, they talk about how they, you know, they want to improve these community relations, et cetera. But uh, again, you know, when talking to the families, you know, that was another thing they said to us, you know, we were working to improve transparency and relationship with families, you know, speaking to someone like Teresa Smith, Daisy Hayes' daughter, Daisy Hayes, she was missing. Her body was never found, you know, uh, folks believe that she her body is in a landfill because of some surveillance footage that came out related to her case um officers you know told teresa well your mom had a drinking problem right like she it sounds like your mom took a lot of trips to the liquor store things noting things that literally have nothing to do with the fact that she was missing and further traumatizing the family so it's really you know law enforcement hasn't really given us a straight answer that they can point back to fact um, and, and so that's been really troubling, troubling for us. You would think that, well, <laughs> you know, you would think that any organization that serves the public would want to do the best job possible. And if someone is presenting them with data that shows that there are areas for improvement, you would think foolishly, perhaps naively, perhaps that they might embrace that data and say, OK, Let's take a look at what you've done and let's take a look at what we're doing and see if there are some some solutions here. What if they had done that? What solutions would you have suggested to them? Well, um, Sarah Conway here, one of the entities that have been very interested in our findings is the Illinois, the Chicago, the task force on missing Illinois, Illinois task force on missing and murdered Chicago women. Um, it's a state task force that uh, was formed by um, Senator Maddie Hunter and Rep. Cam Buckner, and it's a group of um, legislators as well as researchers and um, you know. A, Teresa Smith's daughter, or Teresa Smith, Daisy Hayes' daughter, is also on the the task force, and they're looking into understanding, you know, how all of these state entities interact with families, as well as what are the underlying systemic issues that are really driving this crisis. Um, one of the you know, uh, we've been to several of their meetings and, you know, we've seen representation from the Illinois State Police. Um, you know, however, there are no current, um, you know, employees or officers from CPD that are on uh, the task force. So it's just, you know, it's a it's a puzzling thing as a journalist to kind of see the de facto entity in Chicago that kind of is, you know, handling this crisis, but they're not they're not represented or showing up to, you know, the, the state task forces that's really looking for solutions. But to kind of contextualize the task force, it's actually following other states. You know, there are other states in the country that have been looking into this issue. We can look to Montana, where there was a state task force that looked into, you know, this very 
exact same issue, but how it impacts indigenous people in that state. And, you know, we can look to Minnesota that's looked at how, you know, the, how the issue of missing and murdered black women and girls in that state and actually formed the first office nationwide to, to you know, provide more services to this um, on this issue. So just really quick, Joan, to piggyback off Sarah, solutions that we were able to identify by way of talking to families, by way of talking to law enforcement, by way of talking to um, or learning from these state task force that have already occurred is that there has to be some kind of specialized unit, right, that um, that uh, investigates the cases. Chicago police do not have a specialized unit. Some folks say that this unit needs to live within CPD. Other folks say that, you know, uh, CPD's involvement discourages people from reporting their loved ones missing because um, they're afraid, you know, if you're a criminalized popular person, if you have a warrant for your arrest and your child is reported missing, there's a possibility you go to report your child missing and you get arrested yourself. But then there's also other ways that folks, um, solutions that came up, you know, former, former law enforcement, Patricia Casey mentioned that there needs to be some kind of human trafficking screening um, in order to, you know, really understand what young people are experiencing on the street, what kind mm-hmm. of trauma they're living with, it, you know, and, and um, because there is some connection between the traumatization of a young population, the exploitation of a young population and the, the, the crisis of, you know, crime that we're seeing in the, um, in the city of Chicago. Trina, Sarah, I'm sad to say we are out of time right now. Um, this is so important. I would like to invite you back. I think that we need to talk about solutions at greater length and in greater depth. And I and I hope I can get you to come back on in the next week or two to do this again. Sure, we'd love to. And, um, you know, for any listeners that would like to read our series, it's at chicagomissingpersons.com. It was produced by the Invisible Institute and City Bureau. There are some really exceptional short documentaries done by Chicago filmmaker Kai Thomas on where you can listen to and hear the voices of families themselves on their experience interacting with the Chicago Police Department and to, you know, share the memory of their loved ones. And thank you for having us on, Joan. We will be back. Yes, uh, we definitely. I'm talking to Trina Reynolds Tyler, Director of Data, Invisible Institute, and Sarah, who's a senior reporter with the City Bureau. We're going to take a break for news and uh, be back with Union Strong right after that. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, take it away, Andy. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Joan Esposito. Whoa, that's an explosive sentence. On WCPT 820. We do a regular sponsored Union Strong segment here on this little radio show where we talk to uh, various trade union people, their uh, leaders, and uh, some of the organization that support union workers in a variety of ways. We are very pleased to have that segment right here, right now. And welcome back, Gary Menzel, president and business manager at Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11. Gary, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Joan. Uh, How are you? Glad to be back on the show. Yeah, glad to have you back. Um, And again, I want to thank you so much for hosting us when we did our live in-person broadcast about um, our union panel. We did it live at Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11 
um, um, headquarters in Oak Brook, a lovely building and lovely people who were just wonderful and so supportive to us. I thought it was a great panel, too. Oh, it was a great day. Uh, the guests and speakers were fantastic. Santina did a great job. You were fantastic. Uh, it was it was fun for us to be part of it. Uh, we'd be, love to host another one another day. Oh, don't let Melissa hear you say that. She's going to be on the phone, Gary, as soon as we're off the air. I think she's already... He's already asked me what the next one is. Oh, know, so. that sounds like that sounds like Melissa. She's the driving force behind a lot of the panels we do here at WCPT. So, uh, Gary, it is getting closer and closer to 2024. You you might not know this, but there's a big election, lots of elections coming up next year. And I know that uh, union folks are always really involved and aware and informed when elections come up. So are you doing anything right now to prepare for 2024? Before I answer that, doesn't it feel like we just got through 2022 <laughs> and that cycle? You're I, not mean, sp- I feel that way, but I think that's because I'm old. I remember once when I was um, much younger my I, I had a birthday and I said something to my dad about, wow, it just seemed like this last year really went by quickly. And my dad looked at me and he said, honey, the older you get, the faster it goes. Yeah, and that's that is so true. But the older we get, the slower we usually go. But it seems <laughs> oh, like well, yeah, that's the corollary. Oh, yeah. It's, it's amazing that it's here already. Are we doing stuff? Yes, we're getting phone calls from a lot of the prospective candidates were were out, and we we've, we've got some um, some signatures for uh, you know uh, prospective uh, Supreme Court justice coming up. Um, we've got uh, uh, some uh, we're, we do a little stuff in Wisconsin too because we're a part of our area goes up there. But we're looking at all kinds of candidates. Uh, the primaries March nineteenth, I believe. So uh, the AFL-CIO will have their, uh, you know, the COPE meetings and stuff. But, uh, yeah, we're actively going to functions and gatherings, talking with candidates. We're preparing the membership in the sense of get out the vote. Sometimes it's hard to drive your membership to actually vote in primaries, especially in off years like 2022. Um, usually when there's a presidential election, they seem like there's a little bit more interest for everybody kind of getting involved. But again, we could always do better. And, uh, I think it's more education and always, uh, you know, know, staying in touch with them. Uh, we're, we're talking about developing an app for the membership so that, that they have easier access. They can see what we're doing. We can put political notifications out. Now, some of my members said, Hey, you can have my number. But please don't send me anything political. So some of them want to have nothing to do with it, which which is fine. It's their choice as a, a good union member to either get involved or not. But what they may not understand, too, is by not getting involved sometimes, and then all of a sudden maybe something was taken away from us on a mm-hmm. state level. Insurance, you know, workers' comp insurance might have got worse here, you know, in Illinois because, you know, the trial lawyers, you know, and the insurance companies – They've got their way and their people that they're trying to get in office. So 
everybody has to understand that you have, especially when you work in a trade and you have so many different things that affect you, health insurance, pensions, you know, wages, prevailing wage, you know, responsible bidder ordinances, all this kind of stuff takes effect when you put people that have your interest, your best interest and your family's best interest, you know, at the forefront of their political views and, and their agenda. You know, so sometimes it starts on the lowest levels, you know, when you're electing, you know, community, community college trustees, you know, you're electing school board members, local park district members. Some of these people affect everyday life that happens in your village, your community. And it also affects the work that's being done in your village, in your community. Who's getting this work? Is it the non-union? Is it union people? Is it a mixture of both? You know, so so the membership has to understand that, hey, we need your help. We can't just do it ourselves because we only get one vote. So if you can help out and all the members in other trades all help out, we have a great chance of keeping the blue wave and the things going in the right direction for everybody's family and their futures. I'd like you to talk uh, a little bit more about that app that you said that you guys were delivering um, is it just going to be for roofers and waterproofers, Local 11? And what kind of um, information is going to be accessible through that app? So, so you know, the newer generation, everybody loves apps, right? When I think of an app, Joan, I think of an appetizer, like maybe, you know, <laughs> onion or, uh, you know, french fries or something, you know. But all these kids... Um, you know, they're on the phones all day and, you know, it's easier for them, you know, instead of going to our, our website, just hit your phone, hit the button. The app brings you right to the roofers union. They can pay their dues online. A lot of trades are doing it. A lot of locals around the country are doing it. Unions are getting involved with it. It's it's already been here for a while. I, I would admit that we're probably just a little bit behind on it, but, you know, uh, participation is key. But, again, you have to build it. You have to let your members know it's there for them, and they will start using it. You know, uh, we're, we're doing an MD Live program, and it started out with only, you know, 20 people, you know, got involved. And all of a sudden I heard there was like 40 or 50. So, again, like anything else, you build it, they will come. They'll start using it. But you're going to be able to pay dues. You're going to be able to see what's going on in the union. You're going to be able to um, have stuff, communication sent directly to you. You can go on, you know, our our fund office has, it's not actually, well, it's kind of like an app, but it's not really an app. It's a web page. You can go there and you can actually take care of your medical stuff there, look at your bills and stuff like that, follow your pension credits, you know, see your hours reported. So you can do that on the fund level. Now we're trying to localize it a little bit more on your daily routine in your union. That way they don't fall behind on their dues. And maybe that, you know, if you could pay it right there on the phone, you know, it might save you that one day. And sometimes guys had to get home to pay their dues. They could do it at lunchtime from their phone. So um, I'm just learning a lot more about it right now, but I saw some, uh, you know, uh, prototypes and things you could do. It looks like it's going to be amazing for the membership, especially the ones that enjoy that kind of stuff. Wow. It really is a brave new world, isn't it, Gary? 
And there's no more going up and turning the dial anymore to find something interesting. <laughs> it just, no. I'm old enough to remember when you had to adjust the rabbit ears to get better <laughs> reception on your television. And oh. that's only if you had oil there, too. Remember, you had to put the foil on there sometimes. <laughs> if you weren't getting good reception, yes, you put the foil on. Oh, my goodness. Gary Menzel, it is our uh, regular sponsored Union Strong segment. Gary and I are going to be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our regularly sponsored Union Strong segment. I'm talking with Gary Menzel, president and business manager at Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11. We um, got a little bit off on a tangent, my fault completely, um, but we were talking about the elections coming up in 2024. Uh, Gary, do uh, people who are running in local and state races, do they reach out to you and uh, Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11? Do they want to make presentations? Do they want endorsements? Yeah, there's some that, you know, um, are either running against their, their they're, they're maybe moving from like an aldermanic position in the city to run for Congress or something. So they've got a, a name out there and maybe the person that they're running against has a name that's been out there for a while and they're looking for endorsements for, from our membership. You know, they know that, you know, uh, people in their districts, we, we probably have them, you know, so they would like us to, uh, send a letter to our membership and say that, hey, the union endorses us. Um, we're asking our union members, if you can endorse this candidate, please show up, turn out the vote, and vote for this candidate. So there are several that reach out. Uh, some ask you to maybe sign uh, petition ballots. Some ask, you know, hey, maybe can you go door to door and help out with, you know, flyers, letting, you know, everybody in the district know that this person is running and, answer a few questions if you need to. So we get, we get involved along those lines quite a bit uh, over the years. And, um, you know, it, it's nice, you know, if you get the people in office, you're helping them out, helping your membership out. And in turn, they're usually voting for, you know, um, the type of lifestyle and, you know, the benefits that, you know, um, people in the trades are usually um, – you know, trying to achieve for their family and their future and security. Gary, we know that uh, you and I have talked about President Biden and his very, very public uh, support of unions, you know, probably the most union supportive president of my lifetime. The other side of that coin is, of course, Donald Trump, who at least as of this moment in time in the universe appears that he is going to pretty easily walk away with the Republican presidential nomination. What would it mean for unions if Donald Trump were reelected? Well, I, I just heard today that uh, the Koch brother that that's still you know alive is mm-hmm. backing Bailey. You know, so so I'm wondering if some of these mainstream Republicans that 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 are donors have you know. Um, you know, the inkling that maybe we can get back to normal times and support some of these other Republican candidates that have more mainstream ideas than what Donald Trump. There's nothing mainstream about Donald Trump at all. You know, so it would probably be, you know, I mean, 
Illinois, we had to go through Rauner here, and those were mm. more tough years for a lot of our members. Um, and then when Trump got in, uh, you know, he changed tax code. Uh, a lot of the union members thought they were going to get this windfall, and they found out they, they got money the first year. And after that, you know, everything started getting taken away from them. They couldn't deduct a lot of things anymore. So so I think, think some of the people um, understood that, you know, he was more for himself, you know, and his his friends than than their family and their 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 lives and their future. But I think I think it'd be devastating in the sense that he's about retribution and he's he's basically been talking about that that, you know, if he got elected there was going to be jailings, you know, and there's going to be, you know, uh going after people that, you know, were politically against him and I'm like in a democratic society, I thought we all had free speech and you could oppose or disagree with people and you just moved on. You didn't get jailed for it and stuff. So uh, I think if our membership and, and a lot of our members back then voted for Trump, and, and I'm just not sure if any of them realized what he didn't do for us as union members four years ago. And if he gets in this time, Will the union uh, member be something that he supports or attacks? And I don't think he's going to support us because, according to him, we, we make too much money. And, uh, you know, nobody's really worth that except him. So I don't think it would be good for, uh, you know, projects coming into Illinois uh, from the federal government. Um, there would probably be a lot of things taken away from Illinois. really hurt the poor. Um, yeah, it's not going, it's not going to be a good thing if he gets in office. Well, I know I was, uh, in, even in 2020, there were still some union rank and file that, um, couldn't, couldn't tear themselves away from, from Donald Trump. And it was, it was really frustrating to know that this guy was not going to do the things that he said. Sometimes I think people wanted to believe what Donald Trump was saying, you know, that, but, but if you looked at his track record, he wasn't a guy who told the truth. He wasn't a guy you could count on to do what he said he was going to do. He was never that guy. And, um, and I think that, you know, he behaved exactly the way some of us expected him to behave. Um, do you think I know that we talk about low information voters, you know, a lot of people and I know this isn't going to shock you, Gary, but they have lives and they have kids and the kids are busy and they have families and, you know, and they have, you know, older relatives to take care of and maybe reading about which candidate is going to do what about what is so far down on their list that um, that they they just don't always, to be perfectly blunt, know what they're voting for. Do you think Trump has been around long enough and has done enough damage that the even the the people who don't have time to pay attention have an idea of who he really is? You know, I I I, I hope I I do believe that you know with Joe Biden beating him last time. By millions of votes, um, there were a lot of Republicans who said they couldn't go through it again. They saw what he did. Um, I believe 
the mainstream Republicans are going to look at it again and, and probably sit there and say, we can't do this again. Um, union members, they may say, you know what, um, he really wasn't out for us. He'll lose a lot of votes there. I, I just, you know, one thing he, he probably will excel at is, and I doubt it this time, but he likes to boast about the crowd size for his inaugurations and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and all, all his rallies, you know. And, and, and they're not as big as he says they are, but attracting people to one of your speeches is not really a great accomplishment. You know, accomplishments come when you change lives and make things better for Americans. I don't think he's interested in in helping the everyday average citizen. You know, um, and you're right, the people that don't really have the information because they're so busy, some some get a short you know, briefing of it, you know, from the internet or something. And it depends on where you get your news and your information, how well you're informed. If it's coming from like a Newsmax or a Cheddar News or Fox News, it's not news and it's generally, you know, good chance it's not 100% accurate. You know, it's misleading and they tell you the parts that they want you to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy, the guy, probably created fewer jobs than uh, any president in the last probably 40 years, at least, you know, Uh, if he's not out there creating jobs for people, what's he doing for Americans, you know, every day and stuff. And if he's not, you know, turning the country around and moving us forward and globally advancing us partnerships with other countries for trade and that he's not really doing what he was elected to. He gets sidetracked on, retribution and punishment, you know, and what he's going to accomplish. I just saw something else today on his last day in office. He pardoned a convicted drug smuggler and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's weird that you let drug smugglers go, you know, and you want to jail TV, you know, anchors or reporters and politicians and other big business people. You want to jail them, but a drug smuggler, it's okay that, that he, he gets pardoned and stuff. So, I don't. I, the average voter has to, you know, um, really look at him and 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 just see what he what what he didn't really accomplish. And I think they can make an educated choice. And I know a lot of people are going to say Joe Biden, you know, is too old. Donald Trump's like seventy seven. Joe's like eighty one. You know, so so they're both old. You know, mm-hmm. so they're younger candidates. Sure, there's probably should be younger candidates, but there aren't. These are the two that are probably going to be there. And, um, you know, they, they have to also remember that the president doesn't come up with every single idea. They have a lot of support system that people that are handling everything for him and they come, they talk, discuss. He has a final decision, you know. So, so when they say Joe can't do the job, uh, I disagree. I think he could do he could do another four years. Um, and uh, if, if, so if the American voter, you know, thinks that. Joe hasn't done much. They really need to research what he's done for average day and everyday Americans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without question. Gary Menzel is uh, president and business manager of Roofers and Waterproofers Local Elegment 11. This is our regularly sponsored Union Strong segment. Gary, thank you so much. Love talking to you, my friend. Thanks, Joan. You have a great uh, holiday coming up. Thank you. Thank you so very much. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this.
DEI. We've heard and seen those letters a million times. But what does diversity, equity, and inclusion really mean? Join Joan Esposito and Santita Jackson as they lead an esteemed panel of DEI leaders from the private, public, and nonprofit sectors to discuss the growing social conscience behind DEI and how they're creating an inclusive workplace and kinder community. Listen this Thursday, 3 to 5 p.m. Proudly sponsored by Great Lakes Clinical Trials, Executive Service Corps, and the Construction Industry Service Corps. Imagine having all the money you need for retirement, all the income, every month, guaranteed. That's Secure Future Investor, an indexed annuity tied to growth in the stock market, but without any risk of loss ever. It's guaranteed money for life income, no matter how long you live. Call 888-509-2228. 888-509-2228. Sponsored by GP Agency, Inc., Raleigh, North Carolina. Licensed in all states. Performance may vary. Consult with your financial professional before making an investment decision. Have you heard? Affordable health care is better than ever. And right now, there are more carriers and plans to choose from. If you're between 18 and 64 years old with a household income of $25,000 or less, this message is for you. Right now, the government's Affordable Care Act is available for individual and family health coverage plans with little or no cost to you. Don't gamble with your health. Call Healthcare for All at 800-337-9047. That's 800-337-9047. You're listening to WCPT 820. Here's the latest Chicago weather update. I'm a meteorologist, Ray Miller, from the Weatherology Weather Center. Partly cloudy tonight with a low temperature of 31 degrees and light southwest winds. Thursday, cloudy with a high temperature of 48 and southwest winds at 10 to 20 miles an hour. Friday, rain likely with a high temperature of 43. Saturday, cloudy with a high of 43. Sunday, showers with a high of 46. And for Monday, a couple of showers with a high temperature around 42. That's the latest Chicago weather update. Right now, it's 41. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, Update on the situation in Gaza. Last, I was able to check... The um, temporary truce is still ongoing. There is still uh, a prisoner exchange that is going on as well, though uh, certainly there are uh, lots more hostages that we would like to see released. Uh, It is a situation that while in a temporary truce is certainly far, far from being resolved. To help us get a better perspective on this, we're joined by Allison McManus, who is the Senior Director for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, John. Um, I see what's going on, and I'm so glad that there has been a temporary cessation of hostilities as uh, we see hostages being released. But do you think this is going to continue? Uh, I mean, there are a limited number of uh, hostages, even if they do release them in dribs and drabs. Eventually, that's 
part of this negotiation is going to come to an end. And what happens then? It's a great question, Joan. Um, I think, you know, it's been a huge relief to see some of these hostages coming home finally after weeks of uncertainty for their families. Um, you know, really a, a horrendous situation for so many of the hostage families. And of course, for so many um, Palestinians who are in Gaza who have been enduring uh, shelling, displacement, um, and a really uh, deteriorating humanitarian situation. So the past um, the past days have been have been a huge relief, and I think really a testament to the fact that the negotiations have worked to be able to ensure that both Hamas and Israel have, in good faith, agreed to lay down weapons um, and see these these hostages come home, see some aid delivered. So a lot to be. Uh, optimistic about there. Right now, I think we are on the cusp of what we're hoping to see would be another extension of this truce. We saw four days announced at the beginning. An additional two days uh, were added, and now we're approaching the end of that six-day period. Hamas has said it is willing to to return more hostages for continued extension. The last that we have heard, Hamas and Israel, Hamas had asked for a four-day extension um, we understand that Israel would, will be considering that. As you said, there's a limited number of hostages uh, to come home. Really want to see all of these hostages home safely. And then the question is really what, what comes next, as you asked. The Israeli government has been quite clear that it does not see this as an indefinite ceasefire, that it will return to its efforts to combat Hamas. The big open question right now, and one that I think is really for, particularly on the administration's mind, um, it'll be for on Secretary Blinken's mind as he travels to Israel, will be what does the fight against Hamas look like from here on out? Is it going to look like what we've seen over the past week, where we've really seen indiscriminate selling, we've seen ground invasion and mass displacement in the north of Gaza? Or will it look like something that is much more restrained, more strategic, uh, targeted strikes on Hamas, uh, infrastructure attempts to locate Hamas leaders? Um, And really, I think what uh, U.S. leaders would hope would be um, a more forward-looking strategy to create the conditions for a lasting so big questions still to be answered, short-term, hoping just for an extension of this ceasefire. Now, long-term, hoping for a more restrained and holistic effort to, to bring Hamas to justice. In any of the statements made by the government of Israel, or frankly, any of the nations involved, have you seen any tea leaves that you can read Uh, where you can see maybe you think one scenario might be more likely than another? I think reading the tea leaves, I mean, we saw um, a tweet from President Biden that made it quite clear that he does not believe that continued violence and bloodshed uh, is going to be the answer to to securing lasting peace. Uh, He made it quite clear that this is actually what Hamas is hoping for. And I think that this is a message that underscores the approach the administration is trying to take with the Israelis. We know that this is something over the past week that 
the Biden administration had had urged Israel to stay its ground invasion of the north, um, has been trying to get more humanitarian assistance in. Um, so I think that this is one possible and, and more hopeful scenario. Unfortunately, Allison. we haven't really seen that, that language uh, mirrored in some of the statements from the Netanyahu government, particularly from some of the more hardliners who seem, frankly, quite eager to resume uh, the, the hostilities in the South, which, again, will just have absolutely devastating humanitarian consequences if we see the same level of, of military activity as we did in the north of Gaza. Yeah. Uh, I saw a um, some sort of expert, some sort of talking head on cable news today because there are still Americans among the hostages. And that person said that, you know, it's great that President Biden has gotten involved in this conflict and he's had um, um, a, a re- he's been a good influence, at least to some degree on, on Netanyahu. But he said the downside of that involvement is that it has perhaps made those American hostages some of the most valuable hostages being held by Hamas. Therefore, they were implying that they would be among the last to be released. What do you think about that? It's hard to understand how Hamas is thinking and rationalizing, of course, Uh, I would say that the relationship between the U.S. and Israel is one that certainly predates President Biden. And so the fact that the U.S. um, provides Israel with billions of dollars of security assistance every year and that the U.S. has, frankly, a great deal of influence and leverage when it comes to the Israelis uh, is not something that started with, with Biden's engagement if this is factoring into, you know, Hamas's rationale about which hostages to release when is something, you know, I, I don't really have a, a good sense of. But I do think that it provides an imperative for the United States to, to play a leading role um, in in these negotiations. So I think Biden would have been remiss to, um, you know, try to mind read how Hamas might uh, view view his involvement or view the involvement in the United States and really the right thing to do um, and what I think that we need to see even more of is the United States really urging Israel, um, again, to, to invest more in what should be a negotiated end to the hostilities. So in that sense, again, we don't really know. We can't really predict what exactly Hamas might be thinking with its strategy to release hostages. We saw today they released two Russian hostages, you know, as a tribute to Putin. Um, I think any hostages that, that are coming home are a success, a, a proven success in negotiations. Uh, and for that, you know, I'm, I'm, I think we should be grateful uh, that the U.S. is playing this mediating role. Is Hamas like we see, you know, we expect the government of the United States or the government of Israel to sort of speak with one voice. Is Hamas that well organized? Are there different factions that maybe one faction might agree to something that another faction doesn't? Should we think of them as one voice like a government? That's a really good question. I, when it comes to these negotiations, I would say that, yes, 
we should think of Hamas as speaking with one voice. I think the the proof positive of that is the fact that Hamas leadership in negotiating uh, the release of hostages and, of course, in negotiating uh, Palestinian prisoner releases has been able to control the rank and file. We haven't seen, you know, errant rockets that have been lobbed to um, undermine this ceasefire. So I think that that is a testament to the fact that uh, there is coordination within Hamas. The more complicated part of that picture is the fact that Hamas has been acting as a government and as a governing body in Gaza for for many years now. And so there may be parts of Hamas uh, that are, you know, officials that are serving in government ministries, et cetera, um, that aren't necessarily going to be privy to, you know, certain um, planning, certain discussions around negotiations. The reason why I'm emphasizing that part of it is because I think this is going to be a really important um, factor to keep in mind as officials begin to think about and as, as we begin to grapple with, um, which, which is really something that should be happening right now and is happening right now, what day after governance looks like. So mm-hmm. when the conflict does end, and again, whether that's, you know, in continued uh, negotiated extensions of a ceasefire that might happen now, or whether that's in, you know, three months from now, at some point there will need to be, you know, day after governance in Gaza. Um, and and so I think it's important there to keep in mind that, yes, while Hamas is an organized body, it has a military wing, it has a government wing. Um, and so it's not necessarily to say it's one organized terrorist entity. And I think it'll be really important, again, in, in thinking about rebuilding uh, governance and rebuilding government in Gaza, that there is some process for being able to vet um, Hamas officials to understand, you know, who will still need to be serving in government role and separate those from the um, the attackers, the military planners who are responsible for the October 7th attack. Um, a long time ago, there was a man named Yasser Arafat who was the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And, you know, some said they were political, some said they were terrorists, some said they were both. And it kind of reminds me of um, a sort of Hamas. But, But Yasser Arafat was always front and center. This is who I am. This is the group I lead. Is there somebody like him for Hamas? Is there a name I should know? What's difficult about Hamas is that the leaders who have been the, the most front and center, um, Hamid Daif, you know, uh, these are these are these are the leaders of the military wing. Um, what's become quite complicated, I would say, with Hamas is that the Hamas um, ethos, you know, Hamas was not founded as a political governing body, mm-hmm. it was founded as a, um, you know, what I think Hamas would say was for freedom fighters, but a violent, um, a violent organization that main purpose was to see the eradication of the state of Israel. Uh, so in that sense, you know, when we think about Hamas, you know, this is a, an organization with an ideology that has violence baked in. So its leaders are, 
going to be leaders who, you know, embrace that ideology. Again, that's not to say that over the years as Hamas has taken on this governing role, it has not evolved um, and that members of Hamas, uh, you know, again, are, you know, not to say every member of Hamas is engaged in terrorist activity, um, but when it comes to the leadership, there's not necessarily the same cadre of purely politically minded leaders as we may have seen um, with somebody like Yasser Arafat and the PLO. And so, again, when we think about day after governance, you know, this is really going to be governance that does not include Hamas as a governing body or as mm-hmm. a political party, as it will, even if some of those who may have served in a Hamas government would serve in um, a newly formed, uh, you know, governing body in Gaza. What you say makes a lot of sense because I was watching some video last night of hostages being brought to the Red Cross. And it struck me that, you know, there's the aid workers who are running around. There were some, um, you know, military people who were walking around. But all of the members of Hamas who were bringing the hostages in, they were all covered up. They had their faces covered, their bodies covered and I, and it was just like, it just struck me <clears throat> if they are like, they see themselves as this military wing. It's like they were still hiding who they were. It's like it just, it gave the impression. It reinforced the, these are not regular military people. These are terrorists. They don't want us to see their faces. They don't want us to try to figure out who they are or where they live. They want to hide that. And it was just, I don't know. Creepy, uh, I guess, is the best word I can think of to to watch watch this exchange. And what you've just said, um, I appreciate sheds some light on that for me. We need to take a break. I'm talking to Allison McManus, who's the senior senior director for national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress. We'll be back with more after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I'm pleased to be joined by Allison McManus, who's a senior director for national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress. We are talking about the situation in Gaza and what is going on now, what the future prospects look like. Uh, Allison, one thing we haven't touched on is the delivery of humanitarian aid. I was um, reading to the audience yesterday an article that said that, you know, like 50, 54,000 pounds of food and medicine and other supplies uh, were being s- delivered by cargo plane from the United States to Egypt. And in Egypt, I guess there's a staging area where they can get this stuff to the United Nations workers that then bring it into into Gaza. Um, do you think what has been happening along those lines is sufficient? Does there need to be more? And if so, what would that look like? Well, and it's, it's simply not sufficient. I mean, we're talking about areas that have been cut off from fuel, from food, from medical supplies, um, particularly in the north of Gaza, a, a truly desperate humanitarian situation. And, and while we know that there have been efforts to have aid trucks 
delivered over the past weeks. I mean, these have been really a drop in the bucket, while at the same time there's been continued shelling and increased need. So over the past days, you know, again, I mean, we are breathing a sigh of relief that even that, like, families can get a night's sleep finally in Gaza. But if we're talking about what's going to be needed to um, address the, the serious health needs, um, to get fuel into areas that haven't had fuel. And, of course, the fuel is critical for being able to provide electricity and regular power, which is critical for, you know, again, for hospitals. Um, this is going to be a much longer effort. So it's, it's encouraging. This is, this is necessary. This aid is, is absolutely life-saving. But we'll continue to see... You know, people uh, dying unnecessarily will continue to see people dying increasingly of communicable diseases because this is now, um, you know, a real concern. We've seen newborns dying from preventable diseases. We're seeing risk of starvation. So, you know, I, I can't underscore enough how dire the humanitarian situation remains, particularly if we see this resumption of hostilities, which really makes it difficult to get aid to where it needs to go. Um, <clears throat> when uh, the war in Ukraine started, I was talking to an expert on Russia and, you know, I was like, so, you know, what do you think? Like four months, five months, six months before this gets wrapped up. And there was this long pause. And he said to me, this is going to go on for a very long time. Next year at this time, you and I will still be talking about this conflict. And I was just gobsmacked. I've learned my lesson now not to be so um, naive or Pollyanna. So I haven't really speculated on the uh, Israeli-Gaza uh, conflict. But, but do you see this like Ukraine going on and on and on? Well, it's something I I have been, let's say, speculating on uh, quite a bit. And again, I think it's it's really hard to know, um, even amongst those who are, you know, like myself, watching this conflict, talking to U.S. officials, talking to journalists, you know, trying to really understand what this state of play is. It's hard to know for a few reasons. One is because I think that there is, let's say, um, disagreement about what the next necessary steps are um, to, to actually deal with Hamas. Again, we see many, not many, but, uh, but some in the Israeli government um, who I think want to continue with this, this military, uh, military approach, which is frankly, you know, if that's going to be the approach that's taken, then I, I unfortunately think that we could see the conflict continue because we know that Hamas is, is, you know, deeply embedded uh, in parts of Gaza, in some of the, the tunnel infrastructure that they've developed. Um, and, and, and frankly, the, the question of what would it actually mean, I mean, is the intention when Israel says that it, or again, parts of the Israeli government uh, say that it wants to, dis, wants to destroy Hamas, to kill every single person who has an association with Hamas, um, you know, on the other side, we've seen an urging for, again, a, a, 
an enduring ceasefire, a negotiated ceasefire, with a more holistic approach to, to dealing with Hamas. Uh, that would include, you know, cutting off financial um, streams of funding that would try to stand up some government uh, in Gaza more quickly. That, I think, is a more hopeful scenario that, that we may see, you know, a more swift end uh, to hostilities. But right now, I think it's very much uh, up in the air, and I think we'll we'll find out a bit more as the ceasefire continues to be extended. If the ceasefire can hold for a bit longer, then I think it's more hopeful um, that we can see a transition to, again, a sort of day after, um, you know, governance outlook. Um, the other big question right now is what's going to happen in the Israeli government. Netanyahu, of course, has been at four of pushing for this military approach. I think Netanyahu was particularly humiliated in the October 7th attack. And so there is a bit of a feeling of Israel uh, under Netanyahu. If he wants to show um, so force, frankly. And we know that that's not, um, you know, I would say unanimous position that, that all in this um, unity government holds. We know that Netanyahu is deeply unpopular uh, among Israelis right now, particularly for the handling of, of um, the hostage situation, but, but also for the security failures that led to October 7th. He's widely blamed for this. So it also raises the question of what a realignment in the Israeli government might mean. A realignment could be more hardliners come to power, um, which then might mean longer conflict. Uh, it could see more moderate political figures come to power, which may make this, this conflict look a lot different. So a lot of question marks. Um, you know, I, I think just a much harder read, for instance, than, you know, what we might see in Ukraine, um, which is really a question of, you know, military capabilities and who has enough uh, weapons and who has enough strategic prowess um, to, you know, to make a push on the front lines. Allison, thank you for being here. Allison McManus is the Senior Director for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and my audience, Allison. Thanks so much, Joan. I really appreciate you having me. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Every Saturday, you listen to Edwin Eisendraft here on WCPT when he brings you the big picture. Edwin also has a substack that you should be subscribed to. It's called It's the Democracy, Stupid. And uh, he writes about what is going on in our country in all of its uh, various permutations and joins us now to talk about all that and more. Edwin, hello. Hi, Joan. Uh, before we get into, I do want to talk to you about your last substack, But before I get into that, I want to get your reaction to uh, the Coke Club so very publicly going all in on Nikki Haley. I've been reading a lot of conservative columnists today that say this is what it's going to take. We need the Republican donor class. 
to stand up once and for all and say Trump is done. No more Trump. We are moving on as a Republican Party and we're putting our money where our mouth is. Do you think that's an accurate reading of that? And what do you think of the move itself? I want to say something I can't say on radio about Trump's backside and where their mouth actually is. But um, look, the Republican Party is gone. It's over. It's done. You know, um, we need a right of center party in America. I strongly believe in a two party system. We have a left of center party and a right of center party. And they argue um, in public about the policy choices we make as Americans. And that's good for the country. But today's Republican Party isn't it. And the Koch brothers and everybody else who gave us this mess, who spent years destroying the Republican Party so they could own it. Um, uh, they, there's nothing they can do. It's Donald Trump's party. Um, and, and, you know, Nikki Haley flipper that she is going from one thing to the next, looking for any uh, edge that will, you know, help her if Donald Trump goes to jail. Look, what does the party stand for? Uh, nothing. Right. Just making people angry. So I don't think anything of it. The Koch brothers can waste some more money. Um, they, the, the, the right, the serious people who and there are serious conservatives in America who have different answers than you and I have for how the country should move forward. Um, but they're answers that are thoughtful and they and they should be debated. You know, I mean, I have it, it just they don't have a party. They don't have a place to do it anymore. Well, here's so. one thing that I was thinking when this happened. Uh, I have been expressing the sentiment for a while that rather than the Republican donors going to something like no labels, and we've seen enough articles to know that even though they're trying desperately to hide who their donors are and where their money's coming from, this is clearly a Republican-backed effort, no labels. And I'm hoping that maybe if more people who believe in Republican values say we are only going to fund non-Trump, non-fanatic candidates. Yes, I agree with you. Nikki Haley doesn't have a shot and she is a wishy-washy kind of gal. But but it's I think the the overall move, what I'm hoping is that some of the people, some of whom I know personally, uh, who uh, who seem to believe that no labels is the answer here, and I'm thinking to myself, if you really believe in Republican values, don't create a third party that's never going to go anywhere. Go back to your party of choice and take it over again. And I was hoping that maybe the Coke Club might give some of those donors the courage to do that. Joe, they can't take it back. They can't. The math, the math is impossible. They've so radically gerrymandered the district that anybody can be run at from the right. And the crazier the right, the easier it is to win. That's why they have accelerated their path down the drain. So they drew maps that said, we need to protect ourselves. So we need to make sure there's not anybody who, you know, who isn't sort of radicalized to the Republican MAGA world in these districts. So that's why these guys all kowtow to Donald Trump, even though they know better. They do it because they're going to get ousted from the MAGA world. They've drawn MAGA districts. The Republican Party is now gone. And they can't rebuild it with these districts. It just can't happen. Well, my fear is that no labels 
will create enough confusion to possibly act as a as a Ralph Nader spoiler in the next presidential election. And I've talked to I have one good friend who is a big believer in this whole no labels thing. And he told me, he said, no, we've done polling. This, the, the people want an alternative. We're, with the polling shows we can win. And I'm thinking, oh, honey, polling, really? That's, you're going to stake yeah. your, your whole future, the, the, the chance of another Trump victory because of, of, of some polls. Uh, it just broke my heart. No labels is a, is a, is an off-brand attempt to create a, a right-wing right-of-center party. And again, one way or another, we'll get there in the, in the country. Um, doing it this cycle does risk uh, helping Donald Trump. But I, I, you know what? When somebody says, "Oh, you know, people are tired of both parties. They both are bad. We're looking for something different." I want to say, "Are you kidding? Let's talk about what Democrats have accomplished. What mm-hmm. part of it don't you like? You know, yeah. seriously." I mean, you're up against a Republican Party that will burn down the Constitution, that doesn't care, in fact, doesn't want people to vote, that only wants to give rich people more money, that doesn't care about the environment, that wants to send women back 150 years. And, and Democrats have stood up against that and made progress. And somebody says, oh, pox on both their houses. Tell them to grow up and actually read the news. Amen to that. Amen. I mean, I mean, in fairness, I want to say this. In fairness, read the news. You have to read it carefully. It's not everybody's fault because the news yeah. is all Donald Trump all the time. I, I mean, think it was and, Jay Rosen who is um, somebody. If you're not following Jay Rosen on social media, you should be because he is very thoughtful. And he was he posted something recently about how um, some nonpartisan organization was analyzing, you know, the last several years of stories and headlines by the Washington Post and by the New York Times. And the conclusion they came to is if you consider certain topics, um, you know, going to war with China and a trade uh, war, if you consider certain topics more Republican than Democrat, what they found was that You'd have to say the Washington Post had, had more democracy, democratic sort of articles, but that the New York Times seemed to write articles designed to interest a Republican audience. And I think part of the reason you mentioned how Joe Biden has done some amazing things, he's done some staggering things. But you and I both know that if the mainstream media doesn't continually tell people, oh, my God, look, greatest job numbers in 30 years. Um, but if they instead have a headline that says job numbers, good, but will it last? That's a different feeling that gets in to the person who is looking that over. And I think um, that the gray lady, the New York Times, has um has not done Joe Biden any favors. Not that the Washington Post is necessarily in his corner, but you and I both know that there used to be a time when if it was like if something good happened in the country, the article would be, hey, something good happened today. And to, and now in the journalistic times we live in now, that article is most likely to say something good happened today, but, but, 
yeah, this is a better topic for you and Jennifer and Mark. <laughs> <laughs> All you, you know, real journalists, you know. Um, but look, but I, I, the only thing I would say about that is when you look at the uh, Washington Post articles, they may run articles on topics that are more interesting for Democrats, but most of the time, those articles are about the terrible things Republicans are doing in those areas. Articles on voting rights, but Republicans are against it. Donald Trump said he wouldn't let people vote or whatever it is. The focus on Donald Trump, Donald Trump's gotten more press and more attention than the president of the United States. Right? Yes. I mean, that, that, it's just there, there it is. Just leave it alone. If, if Joe Biden got the if what the administration accomplished got you know the the amount of coverage a normal president gets this wouldn't be close but uh, the country thinks we have two incumbents because of the nonsense in the Republican Party and so it's, it's been covered that way and um, but you know what what goes around comes around right because like referendums are supposed to be you know I mean elections are referendums on incumbents. And so the Republicans thought they would kick our backside in the last midterms because, oh, it's a referendum on the incumbent. But you know what? It was a referendum on Republican incumbents, too. Yes, indeed. They it want was. to pretend like they're in power. Well, guess what? We all like what they're doing. And um, I have to say uh, we're going to take a break. But um, you, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob and I do like to talk about the way political stories especially are getting covered. But. Edwin's last Substack, or at least the last one I saw, talked about political journalists and how they can alter their coverage in a way that could make our democracy healthier. So we're going to get Edwin to talk about that when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive. WCPT 820. And I'm joined by host of The Big Picture, Edwin Eisendrath. You can hear him every Saturday from 1 to 4. He also writes a substack called It's the Democracy, Stupid. And he had some advice for political journalists in his last post, which was titled, The Democracy Will Be Healthier If Political Journalists Widen Their Lens to Cover What's Really Happening Instead of Just What Politicians Say. Talk about that, Edwin. Um, most of the criticism of journalists come from journalists. And, and again, Mark Jacob, Jennifer Schulze, you know, when you guys get together to talk about it, it's the perspective of journalists on journalism. And it's wonderful, and you're right. But there's a slightly different view from where I sit. Um, I think journalists are, you know, they have PTSD from covering MAGA. They, they're like, they can't believe that America hasn't just walked away from these horrors that they tell them about every day. And they're forced. They think they're forced. They aren't really, but they're canons and journal to make them think they have to report what people say. And they've been reporting lies for years and it's worn them down. And so when you li- when you read the, the not just commentary, but even news stories, a careful reader sees in those news stories, pessimism and hopelessness. And that that itself, not the content of the journalism, but the pessimism and the we can't do anything. Look, we've been telling you how is this still happening angst that's in their writing and in their commentary is misleading because it, it because if you get out and see what's happened in the country, 
the turning of the economy, um, you know, I mean, we inherited COVID. The economy is the strongest in the world. And it's not just the strongest in the world. It's the first sort of post-industrial economy that's finally turning, you know, since the 1980s back to favor workers as opposed to disowners. And that's not going to happen overnight. But we've started to make that change. And, John, we've started to tackle climate change. And, you know, all of the big issues we are actually working on and working constructively. And, and I even think about our leadership in the world. You know, America's back in some pretty remarkable ways. And that's a cause for celebration, not for angsty, fear kind of writing. And when journalists write with this, this anxiety dripping through the, what they write, like, oh, my God, we could lose America. Mm. It, it, it makes people think, oh, my God, we're going to lose America. But but what what they should be saying is, oh, my gosh, we are on the cusp of having the first real, inclusive, multiracial, multi-faith democracy the world has ever seen. And if you are such a baby, you thought that was going to be easy. You know what? Look <laughs> in the mirror because you're actually not that baby. You know, not, none of the progress we've ever made in our history has been easy. I mean, you know, women wanted like they had a convention and said, hey, we ought to vote. And it took 100 years before they were able to vote. Right. And they worked every day for it and fought hard. These these wins didn't come easily. And I don't know what's wrong with people today that think that like their problems in the world. So it must be somebody's fault where I think their problems in the world. Let's go fix them. <laughs> right. And, like We are fixing so many of them. And I so I think if journalists would go out and and like talk to the workers who just won these remarkable concessions from owners at, and at car companies, right? They're going to hear a different story, a much more optimistic story about our country. And if you, if they just compare where we were a few years ago to where we are today, they're going to be proud of the work that's been done. And that will come through in the subtext of what they write so that people won't, you know, <laughs> have this feeling that everything's wrong all the time. Everything isn't wrong all the time. That's what's so remarkable. Well, that's what I, what I, uh, what I meant when I said that in a t- there was a time when the news would have been jobs numbers are great, be- best job numbers in 10,000 years. And the way that I see these articles now is they have to everything it, it feels like everything is tempered and that's exactly what I what I was trying to get at and yeah. what you just explained so better yeah. because it leaves people with this feeling like like oh we're never doing a good job we're never um nothing is ever great everything is always flawed and and, and, I, and there's, right? this, yeah. there's this malaise, I think, that we create in people, even the ones who are trying to stay informed. Well, that's why, you know, the, when I talk to activists who are out there, um, the folks who were organizing, you know, in Virginia, in Ohio, in Wisconsin, in these last election cycles, they're not beaten down. They're determined and they're optimistic because, you know, when you're in, in journalists have a particular problem because they're watchers, not doers. And, and, and that's a, that's always frustrating. Right? You see something, you want to do something about it, but you're writing about it. Okay. So so it's a, it, um, it makes it harder to be an optimist, to say, to see what's going on. But I think journalists have to have to find it. The country is not this um, 
there's a lot of good going on. And, and it's happening, you know, all over the place. It's even happening in red states, um, remarkably, where people are getting out and saying, hey, you know what? You can't take my school board. I mean, in Iowa, but they, Moms for Liberty ran, you know, and lost all over the place. And Iowa is yeah. not a blue state, right? But regular people said, you know what? You're my way or the highway. You're going to tell me what books my kids can read. That's not how I want our kids to be raised. Yeah. And, yeah, and I, beat them soundly. Yes. Right. America is, I mean, just because there are people who would drag us back to the Middle Ages, Right. There are people who are determined to say, you know what, we're not all equal. Some people are superior to others. <laughs> That's not a new strain in America. There's been that there's been that forever, but we don't let them win. Right. So they're out there and they have a Republican Party now, which is dangerous. Um, but we're not going to let them win. And we, we you know, we keep beating them. We have throughout our history. We're going to do it again. But I wish journalists would not just give them like like try and make it a horse race. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm starting to see in, in yeah. a lot of the newsletters I'm reading. People crying out, report, don't report on this like it is a sporting event. You know, report on the stakes. You know, make sure you convey to your listeners or your readers that there are things at stake in these elections and and frame your conversations in terms of that rather than just, you know, almost approaching it with a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hey, you want to hear the crazy thing that happened today? Um, and, I, I, you know, I think that's I think that we I think that organizations can do that and not lose out on clicks if it's done the right way, because that's always the argument. Well, you know, we report things the way we do, because that way we get the eyeballs, we get the clicks, we get the engagement. Yeah, well, that, uh, that's not why journalism is constitutionally protected. Mm-hmm. You know, not it, 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 the founders didn't say, oh, we're going to we're going to write journalism into our, you know, in, in, into the fabric of this nation so that they can get clicks. <laughs> so that they yeah. could you know, tell us who we are and help us understand, help hold people in power to account. Right. Um, but just like giving being a platform for people to come and lie and feeling like you have to give them your you have to repeat those lies. I just wouldn't report on them. Yeah. Like, OK, who cares? Donald Trump says, I'm going to I'm going to be campaigning with union workers you know, on the picket line. And that got reported for a week. Yeah. Seriously, after all this time, somebody didn't just say, you know what, when he does it, we'll report on it. But saying yeah. he's going to do it, he's probably not going to do it. Don't bother. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Edwin, I always enjoy your show. And by the way, um, Matt just texted me that uh, later today on Patty Vasquez's show, she's going to be talking to the assistant secretary at the Treasury today, and they're going to be talking about some of the impacts the Inflation Reduction Act is having in increasing clean energy investment in some underserved communities. So, you know, if you can't get the good news anywhere else, darn it, you can get it here on WCPT. Go, Patty. <laughs> yeah. Go, Patty. Uh, that's going to be uh, that's going to be that's going to be an interesting one. 
And um, thank you for joining me. Like I said, Edwin, in addition to his radio show, does this Substack. It's the democracy, stupid. And uh, it is it is definitely worth subscribing and reading uh, his words there. Great job, Edwin. Glad we could talk about Thanks, it. Thanks, Joan. Always fun. Bye. Bye. Uh, we are going to uh, take a break and um, I just want to remind you again, Patty has this big interview with the Assistant Secretary at the Treasury today on her radio airwaves. You know, we all talk about, you know, the things that Biden is accomplishing. And we forget sometimes that as part of what he wants to happen, he also wants these things to be done with union workers. And he wants people who traditionally don't get a piece of the pie to be included. And that is exactly what she's going to be talking about today. We're going to be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade. And if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. WCPT 820. Earlier this week, we spoke with um, a member of the Menominee tribe. Anne Egan Walkaw was here, and she is in Wisconsin, and she is part of a larger group that is working to get fair legislative maps in Wisconsin. Anne was talking about how the way the maps are drawn now, it really makes it difficult, if not impossible, for any uh, Native Americans to try to run for and hold office. One of the other groups that is part of that effort to get fair maps is the SEIU in Wisconsin. Uh, the president of the SEIU, Pat Rays, joins us now to talk about this. Hi, Pat. Thanks for being here. Hello. I'm happy to be here. So we talked to Anne, who explained uh, to us how the maps are drawn, and in some areas, um, native areas are bifurcated or even cut into smaller pieces, diluting the potential native vote. Tell me um, what the SEIU wants to accomplish here. Well, we're seeing that division and that that etching out of um, some of our diverse minority workers Throughout the state where they're being, you know, we have islands of, of um, neighborhoods and towns being pulled out of the local area and being put with another redistrict area so that their votes really have minimal impact. And so we are really truly minimizing the power of the worker, um, taking away their voice, which we should never do. Um, we need to hear, have fair maps. Um, the Constitution states that um, districts should be co- contiguous or right next to each other. And we have a, a large number of districts within the um, populous area that have islands or an isthmus drawn out um, where it looks like one one block or two blocks of people are are pulled into a completely different district and that's not fair for those for those citizens you know the citizens of Wisconsin have a right to to vote and have a right to have their voices heard with their neighbors and not with a group 20 miles down the road yeah now i know that you uh, spoke at the state capitol 
Tell me what you said there about this. Well, I I have worked as a nurse in the Madison area for 34 years. Um, And there are a lot of legislation um, that affects the workers in health care. Home care workers, their, their, their pay is directly associated to legislation. Medicare pays the majority of long-term workers. And, we, and those are some of the lowest paid workers in the state. And that's not, you know, that, that's an incredible disservice to our frail and elderly populations that deserve to be treated like we would like our family members to be treated. And with the gerrymandered maps, we're not seeing those voices heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have seen where Republicans or conservatives in office are not listening to their constituents. They, we have seen not only on a federal level, but on a state level, um, House representatives getting nothing done. And putting our citizens at risk, they have put the health care workers at risk. They have refused to take the federal money that would add 91,000 people to our badger care roles. Um, that's there with a vote of yes. And, you know, we have a lot of people that deserve to have health care. And it puts a lot of strain on our health care services when... We have a lot of people that don't have health care, and we have people having to choose between medications or food because we didn't accept that money and because our representatives are not listening to the constituents. Yeah, when when Um, President Biden made that money available, um, all these... All this money available to the states so that they could expand Medicaid and more people could get health care. And some Republican states were like, nah, no, we don't want to appear to give uh, Biden any kind of victory. So, uh, no, we're, we're not going to we're not going to do this. We're not going to expand the program. We're not going to take the money. And I thought to myself, how ridiculous is that? And it's not them that are being impacted. It is our working poor that is being impacted. It's people working two, three jobs to keep a roof over their head. It's people going into medical debt and losing their houses because of medical debt who could have qualified for Badger Care. What right do we have as a society to make people homeless for political reasons, Mm -hmm. especially when the people making the decisions don't need it, could pay out of pocket for the health care, and oftentimes go to other places outside of the state so they don't even um, support the regional areas. Now, Pat, you know, I know you're president of SEIU Healthcare Wisconsin, and that is the state's largest health care union, and you are also still a practicing nurse as well? Correct. I work at the bedside. I have worked at the bedside for 34 years. Wow. And I became president because I I figured out that a lot of the issues we were having during COVID were issues that were made with legislation impact to the CDC, to OSHA, and that people needed to hear 
from the bedside nurses and not from the educators or the administrators. And um, never saw myself taking this role. <laughs> but I figured out if, um, if I wasn't willing to do it, who would? And if not during COVID, then when would I do it? Yeah. And so I stepped forward and was elected. And, you know, we have been making an impact across the state. We also have um, locals. Not We are not just a healthcare organization anymore. We also have property services and um, some public sector within our union also. And so um, we cover... I know that this matter has been heard by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and you're kind of waiting for them to rule on that. But you've, you and other SEIU members have also been working this issue on the ground. Talk to me about that. Uh, we're, we're, we, have, we have been door knocking since 2018, making sure that we get workers to the polls to help voting and to try to counter some of the gerrymandering. Um, we have been fighting the Act 10 laws with um, helping the UW nurses, um, trying to get their union back. You know, UW hospitals own a hospital outside of Wisconsin. They own Swedish America down in Rockford. That means it's no longer a Wisconsin-only public hospital. And they are a hybrid public-private and we are currently waiting for a decision from, I believe it's the Dane County Appeals judge, about whether or not they can have a union. And we should get that result back before, the, before Christmas is my understanding. Wow. So, so we, are, we are not only fighting for workers, we're fighting for workers across the state and we're fighting for the rights of people to unionize, because it's, it, it is one of the strongest powers a, a worker has. Because when you have one worker go to management and say, hey, this isn't working, they choose not to listen. Mm-hmm. But if you can get 150 nurses going to management saying, hey, this isn't working, and if, you know, we have a much larger impact. That is why the UW nurses took safety concerns um, to the Department of Human Services. Interesting. How did that go? Well, we at least got to start there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it has made an impact. You know, it's, it's how can we constantly support pressures? You know, there is major concern across the state. Um, I recently heard of CNAs being asked to take care of 22 people for an eight-hour shift, one person with 22 people to provide care. Oh, my. That's minimal. I heard one person being asked to take care of 35 people. That's nine seconds a minute that care is provided, which means you know, the amount of care that our long-term care facilities um, residents are getting is not enough. When, which is why we're also pushing for um, staffing ratios at long-term care facilities, because there has to be enough time to make sure you have more the, more time than it takes to run somebody to the bathroom and leave them in the bathroom. You know, if yeah. you get, have nine minutes shift to take somebody to the bathroom, that's not enough time. And also, and too, what we've seen in the. the 
in the nursing home and the long-term care industry is sometimes these facilities being bought by hedge funds and investment funds. And uh, somehow I don't think that they are doing this to maximize patient care. I think that they are doing it to maximize profits because you always hear of these kinds of organizations buying up a group of long-term care homes and then reducing staffing levels and doing other cost-cutting measures that make the quality of life for the people there just so much worse. Well, you know, and that's an impact across the industry. They try to do, they try to take factory um, equations for efficiency and put that on people, which means we don't have time to talk and make the connections we need Mm -hmm. to make as we're caring for people at their most vulnerable states. You know, I cannot run in and say, here, take these and run back out. I have to be able to go through each medication, review with them what it is, what they're taking it for, to make sure that it is safe to give it to them. And when I only have, you know, five minutes to do that, it can't be safely done. Yeah. And when you're being asked, you know, as a hospital nurse to take care of on a day shift, more than four patients on a general medical floor, that has a big impact. You know, that's when you break it down for an eight-hour shift, if you have four patients, that means you basically have two hours worth of care to provide for each patient, which includes documentation where we, you know, where a lot of the information has to be documented because if it wasn't documented, it wasn't done. Or we'll be put in, in, we'll be in the court systems for abandonment. And so when you start throwing efficiencies in there, what's the first thing to go? It's not the person, it's the documentation. And so we're putting our licenses on the line every time they're asking us to work above our ratios. So um, getting back to our original topic, this effort uh, to get new maps drawn, where does it stand right now? There are public hearings that happened last week in the Supreme Court. I believe the Supreme Court will be looking into it. Um, the last time they looked into it, we had a different um, priority in our in our Supreme Court, and at that point, they were separating um, the powers of of legislation, you know, of government, where you have the um, the governor, you have the Congress, and then you have the justice system, and the justice system over went totally over the legislative branches and overrode the veto that Evers had put out. So skipping one whole section and then not even, you know, then going to a more conservative map. We have to make sure that we have maps drawn based on nonpartisan, democracy-based lines so that we can have a true democracy. Our democracy is so incredibly at risk right now because of gerrymandering, because of, of legislators 
not choosing to do what was what's right because of of legislators not choosing to listen to their constituents or choosing to not do anything at all. How often has us, you know, gabbled in and gabbled out and not done anything for the people of Wisconsin? It's disgusting. I could not do that in my job. How can they do that in theirs? Yeah. You know, I can't walk in the room, say hi, and walk back out. I have to provide care. They have a job to provide the state of Wisconsin with a functioning state. And, and they have so many things to cover, but yet to gabble in and gabble out and not choose to do something says they're not listening and say, says we have the wrong people in office. We have to make sure our workers have a voice and the current maps are not allowing for that. Well, I really look forward to this uh, Supreme Court decision. In uh, Wisconsin, we've talked about it for a long time, how it's one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation. And um, the work that you've done, the work that Anne's done, is all really important in bringing about this change. Pat, thank you for being here, and thanks for talking with us about this. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, feel free to reach out if you it need me for anything else. Oh, you can count on it, Pat. We'll be back. You haven't heard the last of us. <laughs> well, I, and, and the good news is you haven't heard the last of us either. Excellent. That's, uh, that's what I want to hear. Pat Rays is president of SEIU in Wisconsin. She is one of the leaders of one of the organizations that's been working really hard to get Wisconsin un-gerrymandered. We are going to take a break. We're going to wrap things up right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I want to remind you that we are doing a live Zoom panel tomorrow on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Here's how you get a free link so that you can pull us up on your computer. Uh, go to your computer, put in WCPT820.com or heartlandsignal.com. Um, the first thing that will come up is Heartland Signal, regardless of what you put in. So then you go to WCPT 820 Radio. You can find it at the top of your screen. Click on that, and that will take you directly to the WCPT page. Okay, you with me so far? Whatever you put in, Heartland Signal or WCPT, it's gonna, it always directs you to Heartland Signal. From there, from that home page, Click on WCPT 820. That will take you to the radio page. And underneath, there will be a picture of whoever is uh, doing their show at that moment. But underneath that person, you will see a little banner that says, Join us for our virtual diversity, equity, and inclusion panel. Okay? Then you uh, click on that, and uh, it takes you... Uh, to a page where you can register. So click once, click twice, click three times, and then click on register, and you are going to be good to go with us tomorrow. You can still hear us on the TuneIn app. You can still listen on the radio, whether you listen live on your computer or listen live actually on your radio or your phone. 
That's the same. But if you uh, want to actually watch us in all of our beauty and glory, me, uh, Santita Jackson, uh, and a and an really fascinating panel. We've got Amber, Amber Holst Wilson, who's from Flourish Research, Dr. David Sanders from Malcolm X College, Dan Allen from Cisco, Trent Spoolstra, who's the Associate Regional Director from the Anti-Defamation League, and Diana Alfaro, Office of Minority Economic Empowerment from the Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. We're going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in all of its different manifestations in different kinds of organizations, what it means. And uh, it is a discussion that is more important than ever as um, adding to their list of popular things that Republicans don't seem to like is diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, any mention of that kind of stuff Anybody who any company that has a diversity officer, they just seem to think that that's a very bad thing. I know you don't feel that way, and I certainly don't feel that way. So um, how these things function, how they will continue to function in a world where some people are going after them. We're going to be talking about all that and more from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. The last two hours of my show Tomorrow. So remember, you can just listen the way you regularly listen and you'll hear it. But if you want to actually see us, then go to our website, uh, click on the radio page, click on the little bar that talks about the panel. And then there's a beautiful blue button and you'll register. You'll give us an email address. And then when um, when we get you all registered, we will be sending out a Zoom link. And you click on that, and there we are. You're not going to want to miss it. I am going to work really hard to dress nice and fix my hair and put on makeup. So um, please make the effort along with me. One last thing I want to remind you that uh, Petty Vasquez has a really important interview coming up with the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. That is going to be today. They're going to be talking about the Inflation Reduction Act and um, how some of its benefits are going to be directed specifically to underserved communities. Uh, it is a big day, a big couple of days. By the way, did I mention Santita Jackson was going to be my co-moderator? I don't think I did. Um, but she is uh, absolutely going to be with me tomorrow as we, um, as we talk to the members of this panel. She's also, because she is a glutton for punishment, she's also going to be here tomorrow at 6 a.m. to do her regular show. She is a woman who seems to be able to go days without sleeping. I'm not quite sure how she does it. Probably because she's still young, that's why. (laughs) We hope uh, you join us tomorrow from 3 to 5. Well, actually from 2 to 5, the whole show. Because the first hour, we're going to be talking to Michael Hawthorne. There have been some great developments in a biofuel and um, environment that we're going to be talking about. So that's going to do it for me today. Uh, Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is going to be starting very, very shortly. Santita will be here tomorrow at 6. I will start my regular show at 2. And then at 3 o'clock, Santita and I will be on Zoom 
moderating, moderating our diversity, equity, and inclusion panel. It's going to be a big couple of days. Stick with us. I will uh, see you tomorrow, literally tomorrow. I will actually see you tomorrow. Have a great evening. Good night.